Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. And uh, yes, it is me. I know my voice is a little bit off in my post-COVID state. I probably sound a little bit different. Apologies for that. I'll try not to cough through the entire hour. We've got you for an hour of science now. And after that, of course, Edith will come on. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. With me in the studio is Chris KP. Good morning, buddy. Hello there. How are you? You're, you're look, sounding good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it depends what you're into. I, I, I think that... Um I think it's, frankly, it was, it's high time. I mean, let's face it, we are a reputable, uh, respected science program, uh, and oh. we've been banging on about this pandemic for two years, and I think it's high time that we had a, uh, a team on air who are all post-COVID. <laughs> I think that's... Uh, we've yep. taken one for the team. And uh, speaking of the post-COVIDs, uh, good morning, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. I quite like that, Chris. Where you know, where we've done our research, we've really experienced it, and yeah, that makes the um, it makes all the medication makes all the medication tax deductible. Yeah, Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. <laughs> good morning, Dr. Shane. It's nice to hear you and see that you're upright after a big week or two. Yeah, it's been good. It's been fun. Uh, would not <laughs> recommend it, people. Put a bloody mask on whenever you go inside and do not, please, everyone listening, uh, this 1.5 metre nonsense is exactly that. It's not science. Aerosol means this shit can hang around in the room for an hour or two after people have left. So don't do this whole, I can social distance, I'm fine. If you walk into a room and a human being has been in there, I'd say put a mask on. That's that's your best bet to, to keep safe. And if you know, if you're able, I know there's a few people who have some issues with wearing masks medically, but beyond that, um, it's simple. It'll keep you safe. I just got a message from a friend of mine in the UK this morning. Uh, her daughter's got uh, COVID for the third time. This is our future. We get to see it if we don't do the right thing. So, you know, it's easy. Anyway, I've lost my dulcet tone, so I know people won't be listening to this message in the way they normally would. It's a bit... Someone said to me, will you be on the air? And I said, yeah, it'll sound more like an old scratchy 45 than the CD, though. Sorry. Apologies. <laughs> anyway, let's jump into some news because we have a big show. We've got a couple of really good guests coming on uh, later in the show. But uh, we will start with uh, you, Dr. Lauren. You're not in your usual closet. You've moved to another room due to the storms. It's, I know, I'm in the middle, I'm in Gippsland, in the middle of a bit of a windstorm at the mm. moment, so I was trying to find the quietest place in my house, so apologies, the audio's not great, but the story is great. Um, this is one of my favourite animals, and most people will have heard of tardigrades, they're also known as water bears or moss piglets, and if you're not one over already, then you have a very hard heart. Um, these are these amazing animals, and I put a photo up on Twitter this morning, they really they look like an alien. They really do. Like they're these kind of slug-looking things and their nose looks a little bit like a hose and it's just this bizarre-looking creature. They're tiny. They're about the size of dust mites. But what's really interesting about them is that they're incredibly tough. So they are the toughest animal on Earth. They can survive being frozen down to minus 272 degrees Celsius. They can be exposed to the vacuum of outer space. And they can even be blasted with 500 times the dose of an X-ray that would kill a human. So these things are pretty much indestructible. Um, what has come out in the last week, though, is really interesting because it's been shown that 
the way that they do this is that they actually express a certain type of protein in their cells. So as the name suggests, water bear and moss piglets, they like to live in moist environments, but the environments that they live in tend to dry out over summer. And so they have to be able to survive a very wide range of environments. And how they do it is that they have these proteins within their cells that when they're living in water, the proteins don't really do much. They just sort of hang around in the cell. But as soon as they, the environment dries out, then the proteins change and they actually become these long crisscrossing fibres that have been described almost like packing peanuts. And so the fibres actually fill up the cells and keep the cells in the shape they need to be. So they stop the cells from, de the cells from dehydrating and they stop them from losing their form. And so the reason that this is really interesting is because last week a paper came out that showed that by using this protein in human cells, we can actually do the same thing for human cells. So that what they did Whoa. is they used these, yeah, it's amazing. So they used this tardigrade protein in a human cell, then attacked it with chemotherapy, which would normally kill the cell, and the cell survived. So we might actually be able to use this to, to help us. That's incredible. And uh, I'm thinking immediately of stopping my, you know, weekly Botox uh, injections to keep me looking young and getting some tardigrade <laughs> You know, proteins just just popped into the cells. That would um, why not give me the luster that I I've come to enjoy. <laughs> That's it. I mean, what, the, the risk is. I mean, what if you end up looking like one? That's the, that's the scary well, you know, thing. But, um... I think there's some some people would argue that you know the change would not be immense. <laughs> oh, it certainly wouldn't be. Um, yeah, it, look, it would be. It would be. Uh, Look, just go with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chris is trying to be very polite there. Did you see what happened there? I got I got Chris's joke out before he did, which uh, I, don't, I, I don't have what it takes to support your it, new tardy grade look. <laughs> uh, they're amazing creatures. I still remember there was an experiment. So I think I reported them about six months ago, where they were they were seeing what the maximum speed you could shoot a tardigrade into a wall was, and it was like twelve hundred and fifty yeah. meters per second or some ridiculous number, and they just yeah. bounce off and go, "Yep, what else you got?" Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm good. They, they are absolutely amazing. They really are. Yeah. And and so the the, um, the authors of this paper have actually talked about using this sort of strategy could help us when we go into space travel. Yep. So, you know, because obviously we'd be exposed to radiation and all sorts of different environmental stresses, we might be able to use some of the, the, the strategies that these cute little water bears do and hopefully help yeah. us. Cool stuff. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? Well, I've got a healthy fear of tardigrades now. Thanks for that, <laughs> Dr. Lauren. I'm pretty sure we leave some on the moon. Aren't there some tardigrades stuck on the moon? Wasn't that something oh, that happened a little while ago? They've definitely been around up there. Yeah, yeah. Just think about moss piglets, Lyndon. You know, they're moss piglets. They're cute. No way. These guys are indestructible <laughs> and they're cute. Like that is... That is a deadly combination. I'm, I'm impressed and I, I welcome our new tardigrade overlords when they decide that that's what they want to do. Um, so, no, I uh, was quite taken by a couple of papers this week that have opened up some new avenues of exploration looking at glacial ice reconstruction. So there were two big ice reconstructions published this week um, in different parts of the world, but they're quite 
useful for us in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, yeah, they're giving us some quite exciting insights. I know a lot of the ice news that we get is generally pretty bad. It's melting and that's bad and that this these are no different, but they actually have some uh, useful insights as well. So the first one is this reconstruction that was published in Nature a few days ago of a tropical Peruvian glacier. So this is a few kilometres above the surface of the earth, high up in the Andes. And reconstructing glaciers, um, glacial kind of extent and retreat can be quite tricky where you have a recent glacier because often when a glacier extends, it will wipe out the history of where it kind of was before. And so these researchers, it took them quite a few years to get to this site. It's a big lake up in the tropical Andes. And they had to work for a couple of months around the clock. They got research students involved. They got PhDs involved. It was a big sort of international collaboration. And they managed to get hundreds of metres of lake sediment to reconstruct um, a a glacier's behaviour over the last 700,000 years, which is the longest tropical glacier reconstruction that we have now because a lot of the other ones have been kind of piecemeal and broken up but this is a continuous record which is really exciting and the other one that was just published the other day and it was led by uh, an early career researcher over at Monash with colleagues from the UK and the US is a bit of a review paper looking at a bigger ice sheet so this is the Antarctic ice sheet I'm I'm talking about the sheet that sits on the continent here, not the sea ice. So, you know, the massive slab of ice that sits on Antarctica, it's several kilometres thick in some places. And these guys have pulled together a lot of information from um, mountain rocks on Antarctica, from ice cores, from uh, beach sediments and and, um, other sources like that to see how that has changed over the past 10,000 years or so. So a much smaller scale than the Andes reconstruction, but still really useful. And, you know, I've read through these and um, the big takeaways for me that I think are useful for us in Australia With the Andes reconstruction, so, you know, three quarters of a million years now we have of information of what this glacier was doing up in the tropics. And the big takeaway that's useful is that these guys have found that the ebb and flow of this glacier over time is very similar to what was found in the Northern Hemisphere. So the tropics and the Northern Hemisphere kind of varied in sync, which is a pretty new and useful finding. We kind of think that we know, but in reality, the vast majority of work that's done about how ice has behaved on the planet has been done in the Northern Hemisphere. And we, the Southern Hemisphere is still covered in shadow a lot for a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, and the Antarctic reconstruction or the Antarctic kind of review, pulling together all of this information, identified that between about 10,000 and 5,000 years ago, there was a lot of um, ice sheet loss. So the ice sheet... Um, got a fair bit thinner, which meant there was more ice melting than snow falling on Antarctica. And in some places, it was as rapid as as the most dramatic um, melting that we're seeing now. But then at about 5,000 years ago, it stopped. Mm. And it quickly rebuilt again to the extent that we see now, to the depths that we see now, which, you know, that's kind of good to know about, good to know that it can happen. And these researchers... Yeah, it can happen. Good to see. (laughs) And not that long ago, really. And these researchers suggest, okay, it could have been climate change. There could have been a big uh, change in the amount of snow that was falling on Antarctica or the uh, ocean could have cooled quite dramatically, which meant that when the ice hit the ocean, it it didn't melt so, so quickly. Or it could have been that when the ice got thinner, 
the weight on the continental mass also got less. So the continental mass was able to rise out of the ocean a little bit. Nice. Which meant that there was less ice touching the ocean, so there was less ice to melt. There is a technical term for that that I, I'm not going to try to say on the air, but um, this is something that, you know, is, is something to, useful to know about because we are seeing melting happening of the Antarctic ice sheet, but if this kind of rebound could happen a little bit, that might slow down what we're seeing. They're not sure. The researchers didn't want to, yeah. you know, say too anything comf- too confidently about that, but, you know, useful and, and helpful as, as we kind of move forward. And now we can see a better picture of the Southern Hemisphere because, yeah, we still live in the dark in, in lots of areas when it comes to Earth sciences yeah. in the South. Very good stuff, Lynn, and interesting. It's always good to see those models coming through because it is super complicated stuff too. It's not the sort of stuff you can do yeah. on the back of an envelope. Um, exactly, and hard stuff. to get from the source yeah. as well. Yeah, indeed. Chris KP. Hey, Gowan. Um, look, I, uh, I wanted to uh, tell you about uh, dogs. Um, and if you're not familiar with dogs, they're like huge, hairy tardigrades, um, but more fragile. Uh, and if you, if you are familiar with dogs, in fact, if, you, if you've worked with dogs or have dogs, you, you will understand the concept of wanting to train a dog, you know, mm. in whatever way, to whatever, you know, f- to whatever level of complexity you might need to do that. Um, and so this is, this is a news story that I picked up. Uh, it came in the, in the Journal of Comparative Psychology. It's a story about training dogs, but training dogs in a way that I have never, ever thought of and is potentially incredibly useful. Um, and incredibly surprising. Uh, there are only three dogs in this study. So three dogs of two different varieties. So it's not a massive sample set, but apparently they all achieved the aim. So it's all doable. It's not like they were all gifted. Um, and the story begins with normal training. Now, normal dog training is you encourage the dog to do something you want it to do, or you, in, in, in real time, predict it's about to do something and then give it a command and a reward. So it learns that if I sit when you say sit and I get a pat on the head or a bit of food or whatever else. So they did the same thing. They taught these dogs a variety of things like, you know, turn in a circle, something they didn't already know, or pick out a particular toy or whatever it was, and they got good at doing that. But then they taught them a new command that I've never heard of, and the command was simply again. Again with oh. a hand gesture. So you'd say that yeah, basically repeat. And yeah. so, obviously, if you teach that if the dog knows I've got to turn in a circle, you say turn in a circle, then and it does. You say again, and it turns in a circle again. But the really crazy thing is the again command was something they could apply to something the dogs had never done before. So when the hmm. dog sort of looks at you with that quizzical tilt at the head that it's ne- you've never done before. You then go again, and it does it again for you. It can actually remember things that it has not been taught and apply that memory, that abstract memory, to doing that thing again. How insane is that? That is wild. It's the most bizarre, wonderfully creepy thing. Now, you know, I was was telling uh, Dr. Lauren off air that... um, there are very few things that my dogs do for the first time that I want them to repeat. <laughs> there is a long list of things they do for the first time that I hope they forget they've ever seen or done. Um, but if I ever get home and they've done the dishes, <laughs> it'd be really useful to go again um, and see if they catch up on that. But I, I'm, I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try and teach my boys, you know, the, the again thing because um, I yep. think I feel like it's there's a whole part of their brain that we've never thought to leverage. It's always been on our terms, but yeah. they have a memory. Yeah, and they could respond with not again. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. They'll be, they're, trying to, they're trying to teach me the get bent command. Yeah, yeah they just hold the paw up, which you'd have to take as not actually, again, Chris. That's true, actually. Not yeah. again. No, 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 not again. Um, I think yeah. this, could, this could actually backfire on you. I'll let you know. Yeah, it's a good experiment to have. 
Folks, uh, we're going to take a break now for some music, and uh, when we come back, we will be speaking to our first guest from today from the Australian National University. It's a, it's a combination of a discussion on knitting and media rights. Obvious combination. We'll bring those together. No problem at all. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. It's 3 R. And on the line with us now is Rachel Kirby from the Australian National University. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. How are you today? Good. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're partway through your PhD about uh, near the end, I hear. Yeah, yep. I'm in my final year right now. Excellent. Now, I found you on Twitter. Most people think, well, that sounds a bit dodgy. But um, I found you on Twitter (laughs) because you posted this amazing picture of a a piece of uh, knitting that you had um, undertaken consistent with your work. And we'll get to your work, which is all about looking at meteorites and how the solar system is formed and so forth. But, but you're sporting this jumper right now. Talk us through what was in your head when you thought, I'm just going to go out and knit a you know, jumper that's covered in the solar system. Yeah, so actually this is a practice jumper, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I, <Whoa. laughs> I had... Yeah, yeah. So I had the idea that I have a paper that's under review right now um, that will hopefully be published soon. It's my first first author paper. And I really wanted to celebrate by knitting a paper uh, pattern date based on that design. Um, so kind of incorporating my research into it. But when you knit a jumper, you can't just think about the pictures. You have to think about how it will fit a 3D shape mm. in my body. So I was like, okay, before I jump into, you know, my research knitting design, I, I should probably do a practice and make sure I can actually get something that will even fit on my body. So I decided to, you know, design the shape and then I was like, oh, that's a bit boring just to knit one colour. So why don't, I, why don't I put a solar system on it? That's great. And did, <laughs> did many people on Twitter twig, I mean, you know, Long-time listeners of the show will know, like, I'm a space junkie. So, like, if I, if I see anything that vaguely looks like Jupiter, I'm <laughs> going to get excited. Um, but do people instantly sort of say, holy crap, you've knitted the whole solar system, like, ten times on this jumper in repeat? Yeah, yeah. So, there were quite a few people who picked it up um, with a few people noticing that my head is the sun with this, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was not purposeful. To scale. Yeah, yeah to scale. Yeah, Obviously, to scale. everything's yep. extremely scientifically accurate. Yep. Um, and, but I actually got some really interesting other people who obviously had the science in their brain, but what they were thinking like phospholipid bilayers and all these, you know, micro scale um, features that they were imagining, but Mm. actually you just got to think on a very different scale. Yeah, Yeah. it's cool stuff. And I think when when I first saw it, I was like even impressed that you had the asteroid belt in there between Mars and and Jupiter, which is a level of sophistication that, you know, we probably wouldn't expect in a, in a hand in a jumper. Yeah, well, it had to have the asteroid belt because my PhD looks at looks at meteorites. Exactly. So yep. all of our meteorites come from the asteroid belt. So it would it would be absolutely blasphemy for me to leave off the asteroid belt. I also included the Kuiper belt. Yeah, that so, was impressive yeah. too. Yeah, I mean I, that mm. was that was for me like looking at those two and thinking, gee, you know, this person hasn't just, you know, you know, sure there's some jumpers out there where someone's whacked a giant Jupiter or Uranus on there and, and been happy about it, but you've got the whole sequence going, which I think is is pretty impressive. Now, <laughs> um, so what, what's next in the jumper world? Are you, you know, you're going to go for uh, some sort of Martian landscape, or you know, how far is this going to go? Yeah, well, right now I'm. Um knitting a jumper, as I said, based on my upcoming paper. And it's actually got an asteroid coming in. So, 
and with some impact craters and then trying to represent melting of the rocks beneath and veins of metal percolating down through the the asteroid so we'll see how it comes out but because that's that's my research. Yeah, so. cool stuff. Look, I think there's some there's some really cool stuff you can see around. I, I remember a couple of years ago seeing some amazing um, women's dresses where there were ast- astronomy designs and and so forth on them, and they just look spectacular. And I think to the untrained eye, it just looked like a really cool you know pattern. Um, but for those of us in the science, it was like, hello, I can see you wearing your research. That's, that's yeah, that's commitment. Now you you work in um, or you're working in the area of of meteorites and and what they tell us. Give us an idea first. Like, do you have to go out and hunt for them, or are you having you know some that are on museum shelves? What what is that process like? Yeah, so we source our samples, so our meteorites from museums and universities mostly. Mm-hmm. There are people who do go collect them. There's even people like the Desert Fireball Network based out of Curtin University in Australia who have cameras pointed at the sky to watch them coming in and then oh. try and go find them. And that's really cool because you can get the trajectory of where they might have come from in the asteroid belt and whatnot. But for most of us, we just look at meteorites that are in these collections already, whether people have found them or watched them fall to the earth and then gone and picked them up. Um, but they, generally, they end up in these sort of scientific collections. Yeah. And, and what does examination entail? So are you soaring them up? Are you crushing them up? Are you dissolving them? What, what is that, what is that in, what's involved in looking at a meteorite and working out you know, its origins? Yeah, so... It is mostly for what I do is cutting them up, and that can be a real challenge because the ones I look at are iron meteorites. Um, And, yeah, I've gone through a few diamond blades (laughs) slicing them open. So I generally slice them open, but we do dissolve them as well to get the chemistry. Once we slice them open, we put them under a whole range of different instruments to try and work out mostly the chemistry, but even to look at, you know, how the different minerals relate and and what it physically looks like as well. Mm. When, so uh, I'm curious there when you when you talk about some of these being iron in particular, is is it the whole whole rock that you've got or was there something surrounding that that got predominantly removed as it entered our atmosphere at high speed and high temperature i mean how much is how much of what you've got to look at is what sort of came to earth yes so we do lose some um in entry and that's the way you get those beautiful long tails Mm. and you can actually look at the chemistry of what's going off by looking at the color of the tails it's it's really quite spectacular some of that work looking at the um spectrography of that we lose a little bit on entry um but most of it is there and we generally don't look at that very outside layer because that has been affected by our atmosphere and contains chemical signatures of our atmosphere yeah interesting i I suppose that's something we don't don't often think about is just how much the the re-entry process actually damages what we're looking at in the sense of contamination you know and and Mm. if we're not careful with that it's problematic yeah, and that's one of the really amazing things about some of these sample return missions. So the stuff that um, from the Ryugyu asteroid that came back, it landed in Woomera last year, um, and that was you know collected by a spaceship, put into a mm. canister and brought to Earth, and that hasn't got any of that contamination, and we know where it came from and we know the geological setting because really when we're looking at these meteorites from these collections from museums and things, we've got a rock. We don't know where it's from. Yeah. It's just like people have brought their cool rock collection mm. that their grandma gave them yep. and said, yep. look at all this. And then we're like, 
great. Yep. And it was, was kept yeah. in – someone cleaned it with orange juice three times. And yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, some, there's some interestingly weathered samples that we get. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, Chris? Um, yeah, I was, I was going to ask – so you've, you've you ignored or you've, you've calibrated for the weird outside of these things. You've got into the middle of them. I get that the, the basic – like the elements are the same as we've got on Earth, but – are they interacting in different ways? Do you see stuff that is totally different in a meteorite that you that you would see in equivalent, um, you know, chemical analysis on Earth? Yeah, for sure we do. So we have the same, like you said, the same elements, but a lot of the time we look at the isotopes and they're different. So that's how we know they're from different planetary bodies because different parts of our solar system have different signatures. And that's kind of how we can group these meteorites and say, oh, these probably came from, you know, this planet that was then destroyed and broken up um, in the past. The other thing that's different is because the gravity is different, the sort of the amount of oxygen, because a lot of these things don't have um, atmospheres. So the amount of free oxygen available is different. The pressures are different. We have really different environments that these form in. And as a result, we do get minerals that we just don't find on Earth. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. Now, Rachel, you've been looking specifically at these, and correct me if I'm wrong in the pronunciation here, these 2E ions. Um, That's perfect. Perfect. Oh, well, uh, nice work. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> thankfully, Rachel sent me the pronunciation earlier. After, you know, see, see, pre-COVID, I wouldn't have fessed that up. But post-COVID, my brain just doesn't care now. Um, you know, it, that's the way it goes. But what's special about these um, 2E ions, uh, these type of meteorites? What's, what's unusual about them? Yeah, so most of our eye meteorites are these just big chunks of iron that look like they came from the core of planets. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we think these form. Like our Earth has a metal core. Most of the planetary bodies and moons and things, they often have these metal cores. So we think these were planets that were destroyed, broken up, and bits of them have fallen to Earth. What's really interesting about the ones that I look at is they don't have that chemical signature. They don't look like they've formed in a core. Mm. They've got textures that look like they cooled really quickly, whereas things that form in a core cool really slowly. But the coolest thing about them is they have these little rocky inclusions in them that look like material that came from the crust of a planet. And so the question is, like, you've got stuff that looks like it comes from a crust, and in a planet you have the crust, and then you've got this big section called a mantle, and then you've got the core. And it's like, how does stuff that's separated hmm. usually by many, many tens to hundreds of kilometres of distance get, get mixed together? Yeah. So that's, that's why they're really interesting to look at. And do we know? Do we know? Like, because the, the mantle's a big chunk, right? I mean, that's a... Yeah. And so you've got some core stuff in there, some, you know, core of the apple, skin of the apple, but the, the rest of it's not in there. Yeah, well, I I think I do know. Um, So that's what my research is based on. So what I think has happened is that you've got this um, planetary asteroid body um, early in the solar system, and it's got a fair bit of metal in there already. A lot of them do. And it's got these rocky things. And then what's happened is you've had this other asteroid come in and just hit it quite fast and hard and cause lots of melting. And when you melt things that already have metal and they've got rocky bits, you kind of have the metal 
is quite heavy compared to the rocky bits. So it starts sinking Mm. and you have the rocky bits floating. So you get these big concentrations of metal. But if it cools quick enough, which would happen, you know, at the surface of a planet, you know, these things would heat up quickly and then cool quite quickly. Um, you're going to trap some of those rocky bits inside the accumulations of metal. Yeah. Do, do we think that the um, asteroid belt was once another planetary body? Is that, the, is that the, the mindset around that or just leftover bits that never formed the planet? More just leftover <clears throat> bits. So there, was, there are bits that were, you know, bigger bodies that mm. have since broken up. Um, and that's where we get, you know, these iron-rich um, asteroids and things. But... Jupiter's is just too big. It's just too big to allow uh, there would be enough like gravitational force within the asteroid belt to form its own planet. It, yep. it just kind of breaks it all up. Yep. I've always thought this Jupiter is kind of the, the solar system bouncer, you know, mm. protects us in a, in the planets from a whole lot of stuff. And yeah, interestingly, though, it also throws a lot of stuff. Oh, at us. does it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it does protect us from some of the stuff on the outside because it, you know, sweeps yep. it up. But also the way that its gravity works, it, it kind of throws a lot of rocks our way too. Jeez, Jupiter. What a terrible bouncer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, actually, you know, to be fair, some of them are a little bit, uh, you know, touch and go, depending on who you are. <laughs> it's okay if you're Mercury, but it's not so great if yeah, you're Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you must hold these things and think, holy crap, this is as old as the Earth or, or older in some cases. Older. Yeah. Older. How's yeah. that feel? Oh, it's incredible. I absolutely love it. So my meteorites, I actually was able to date using um, this amazing instrument called the shrimp. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a great name. But using this instrument, I was able to look at the different isotopes of lead and able to date it to only 25 million years after the solar system began. So that's when our sun formed. Right. So this is so only 25 million years after that. That's how old these meteorites are. And there's even older ones. It's incredible. And that's much older than the Earth in that sense. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. 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 Wow. And um, in terms of like just the, the quantity of meteorites that you look at, you know, during your PhD, is it, has it been, uh, don't tell me if it's one, um, has it been many, like, is it many? Like, are you looking at hundreds of meteorites or is this a couple of key ones that, that give you the information? So I look at probably about 10 key ones in per, like, look at them um, using my analyses, but I also get data that other people have gathered on all the others and use that data. So that's the wonderful thing about science. You know, it's not one of us who mm. is cr- getting these discoveries. It's we're all building, to, grouping together to make this wealth of data and we can draw on. Yeah. Now, if uh, you, me and Chris gave people walking across a salt lake out in the middle of uh, Australia somewhere, you know, and Chris and I are sort of looking at things and you said, no, that's a tree stump, would yeah. you be able to pick out straight away you know, the, the sort of texture and look of, of a meteorite if we found one, in, you know, in some of those open spaces? Yeah, there's some key things you can see. You get kind of like these thumbprint indentations. But it is hard because out in the desert you get a lot of um, desert varnish on rocks mm. that can kind of look like this fusion crust, you know, that glassy crust yep. that you get from when it enters the atmosphere. So it can be really tricky for a lot of people to tell. Yeah, very cool. Rachel, it's great talking to you. Good luck with the rest of your PhD. I know you don't have a huge amount to go, but it's a it's a super fascinating field. And I think, um, I mean, you must be just so excited with all the, the planetary missions and various things coming up as well, you know, yeah, sample it's collection from Mars. We're grabbing bits of asteroids left, right, and center. You know, like it's it's, it's all happening. It's a golden age to be in this field. Yeah. Um, good luck with that, and uh, good luck with the upcoming uh, knitting um, adventures as well. We're, we're you know 
anticipating something great. Given this, <laughs> well, given this was the test version, yeah. <laughs> which I think has blown people away. Um, I think you might have a whole side business of um, of doing this if you you know play your cards right and keep things going. Yeah, thank you very much. Folks, uh, that's Rachel Kirby from the Australian National University, soon to be Dr. Rachel Kirby, hopefully as well. And um, we're going to take a break for a short few station announcements. And when we come back, we'll have our second guest. Uh, strap yourselves in, people. We're going to be talking about quantum chemistry. Chris KP and, all, and I have already taken some Panadol in preparation for this um, detailed discussion. Can't wait. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Katya Pass from the School of Chemistry at Monash University and one of the upcoming speakers in the July lectures in physics at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Katya. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Very well. Thank you. It's great to have, it's great to have you in the studio. Um, mm. We don't have a lot of guests in the studio these days because, I don't know, some virus thing going around. Haven't heard of it. <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Um, but uh, anyway, um, now you work in this amazing field that I think a lot of people won't have heard of called quantum chemistry. And we were talking in the, in the kitchen before about the fact that it's not physics, it's not chemistry, Correct. it's something in the middle. Give us a bit of a rundown. What, what do we mean by quantum chemistry? Uh, really what it is, it's physics in its essence because we take Schrodinger's equation who gave us basically – the equation to solve the behavior of uh, atoms and molecules, mm -hmm. but we apply it to human-made and natural occurring materials. And what I, what I mean, so we're all made up of DNA, so yep. we can apply then quantum chemistry to study DNA and its behavior. So proteins, enzymes, all of the cool stuff that occur within our bodies. But we can also discover materials. You know, we can predict properties of human-made materials like concrete or mm. plastics or... Graphene, you know, graphene that actually mm. goes into our batteries and form electrodes. Yeah. So then we can study pretty much anything that surrounds us and we can actually provide solutions to sustainable technologies even. Think about, you know, a new generation of batteries or a new generation of fuel cells. Mm. So potentially, you know, given enough computer power, we can solve these problems too. Yeah, I, I remember when, uh, much to the dis distress of my year 12 chemistry teacher, that was where chemistry ended for me, year 12. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I, I took up, you know, philosophy subjects in uni and that because of this, you know, I didn't mm. want to do more chemistry. And um, there was a word, stoichiometry, that messed with me yes. at the time. And, yeah. But, you know, when you add quantum in there all of a sudden, because I did quantum all the way through yeah. uh, uni and ended up running a center on quantum encryption technologies. So in physics, that was pretty tough. I mean, on a, on a chemistry, Chemistry scale, though, you know, when people are learning about how chemicals interact, where do you where do you see the the quantum stuff? Like, what what you know, what changes? You know, like we learned about stoichiometry, you know, which is yeah. how how various chemicals mix in different ratios. And I think, see, I probably don't remember that. That well. sounded incredible to me. Sounded yes. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, what, what's the what's the quantum part of that? Yeah. So the quantum part is where you start looking at the atomic level. So we right. actually start to see, okay, you know, like usually these days we have this uh, deconstructed stuff, right? Mm. I mean, there is this big trend. Let's <laughs> let's deconstruct Pavlova, right? And yeah. basically, essentially, what it is, you know, let's put up the Various components on your plate, you know, this is what it is. Yep. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we're going to that atomic level and we're trying to understand what is it that makes atoms tick. Mm. And really, in reality, atoms that consist of 
protons, as you know, are neutrons. These are the nuclei, but also the negatively charged electrons. And what is so peculiar about electrons is that they move very, very fast. They're very light. They move very fast. And unfortunately, they behave not just like particles, but also as waves. And that's what makes it so difficult. So for us, it's very hard to comprehend, right? We are 3D objects. We live and are ruled by Newtonian mechanics, So, which is great, right? So unless we're 80, we know exactly where we are at every single point in time. Well, the electrons don't. Yeah, right. And that's the problem. And that's what makes it a little bit murky. You know how in the very beginning of your uh, program, you talked about glaciers. Mm. So think about an iceberg, right? We know what's on top above the surface, and it becomes very, very murky below the surface. That's exactly how many people think about quantum chemistry in general. Because once you start dealing with electrons that move very fast, we do not know Mm. exactly where they are at a given point in time. So we cannot treat them with a simple equation. We have to treat them as a wave instead. And that's what makes it more difficult. That's why people kind of say quantum chemistry, I'm out. (laughs) So that yeah. that was what I was going to ask you about. So when you're doing, you know, chemistry that, that Shane was describing, and you, you like you learn at school, yeah. um, there are, there are systems and processes, there are algorithms that you can use to, to to determine, you know, how things will interact. To what extent is that just not relevant? And to what extent does your work look more at the likelihood of something happening? Oh, it's all very relevant. So basically, sometimes what we learn in first year or in high school, these are the consequences of what quantum chemistry mm-hmm. provided in the first place. So, for mm-hmm. example, the structure of atom, it all came from the solution of Schrodinger's equation. So Erwin Schrodinger, a, an Austrian, not a German physicist, <laughs> who came up with this wave uh, function equation, right? Yep. So basically to describe the properties of uh, electrons and atoms. And everything that came out of that equation of the solution to that equation we use in in chemistry and we use it in order to understand the reactivity of molecules so you know how you talk about this stoichiometry Mm. and you were forced to let's say well when iron gets reduced right Mm. or gets oxidized what actually happens and we can predict these things in advance we can actually tell you okay iron three plus will be more reactive than something else or will be equally reactive so i think the beauty of quantum chemistry is that we can foresee the result before it happens so instead of you going in the lab and trying things 100 times wasting lots of chemicals and trying to provide the stoichiometry Mm. for the rest of us (laughs) We can actually tell you in advance, well, out of a hundred of things that you can do, only 10 things that you really need to look at. Yeah. And then you can only go and try those 10 things in the lab. I'm saying that it's all very simple. It's actually yeah, not. There yeah. is a lot of more physics that comes into this. And unfortunately, we rely on computer power in order to make these predictions. And yeah. that's what makes it a little bit more complicated for us. It- is there a range of things that you also find there are, I suppose, properties that we just didn't expect? I mean, the one that always comes to my mind from days gone by was when I first learned that if you, if you put down layers of gold and you mm-hmm. make them thinner and mm-hmm. thinner and mm-hmm. thinner, eventually they start changing colour and they're not yes. gold-coloured. They're still gold, yeah. but not coloured gold. And you were getting these amazing different effects uh, on, on the scale of 
layers of atoms as opposed to the bulk mm. of gold. Is, is there a lot of stuff like that where you're finding with quantum chemistry that, you know, th- this this nickel, you know, component might work this way normally, but when we look at it on this scale and we and we use it, as you say, when you're thinking about, you know, things like carbon nanotubes and materials that are really, you know, molecule, not molecule, atom by atom built, that they may have very different properties to what we'd normally be used to. Yes and no. So uh, I'm not uh, an expert in nanotechnology, so I'm not dealing Mm. with, let's say, gold nanoparticles, but you're absolutely right. They change properties. And there is actually a lot more physics that goes into the change of these properties. Mm. So we're not dealing with um, that particular class of materials. I'm more dealing with um, human-made materials. So I'm more into... Uh, organic batteries or understanding how proteins and enzymes behave in our body. And that's when uh, we really don't have those kind of tiny and specific quantum effects. So we're dealing with, I guess, um, well, what I call probably with normal quantum uh, effects, uh, something that is not difficult to treat. But the difficulty comes from the fact that we cannot study the large sizes. Mm. So that's why, you know, we kind of need to go big, right? So we can't just simply truncate a protein and say, oh, we'll just look at this bit and then we'll understand the property of the whole protein. Well, we can't do that. So for us, where I am at, I want to study systems that might not necessarily be driven by very specific quantum effects, but just, you know, general quantum effects. But I want to be able to study their whole Mm. size. Right. So actually go larger Mm. and understand how that size affects the properties. Because, you know, usually we say, oh, you know, this bit very far away from the other bit doesn't really interact. But maybe they do. Put them Mm. in water. Provide some ions like what we have in our body, sodium, potassium, chloride. And then suddenly things can actually change, yeah. and that's exactly what we're trying to understand. And, and this must take enormous computing power. I mean, quantum systems are non-trivial to model. And, in, you know, in the past, in fact, that's one of the things that, of course, got in the way of this. How, how, do, you, how do you manage that, the, the computing requirements? Yeah, so in the very beginning uh, for quantum chemistry, it was very tough because the computer power wasn't there. Mm. But these days, with the rise of the GPU technology, you know, take all of the... Uh, gamers in their yeah. Yeah. car, you know, gaming yep. cards, mm. and there you go. And you can actually speed up our codes to the point that, uh, together with my collaborator from the ANU, Giuseppe Barker, uh, so he developed a code based on the theoretical framework that we developed in my group. So now we can run 500,000 atoms within a couple of hours. Wow. That's right. extraordinary. It is extraordinary, but yeah. we still rely on the high-end supercomputers. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like, you know, I can tell you, yes. go home, <laughs> hook up a few yeah, yeah, laptops yeah. together, and you'll be good. Good luck. No, 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 no. no it, it's and, not going to happen. 500,000 atoms, what's that, like a, a millionth of a gram or something? Like it's not – how big oh, is this? It, oh, it's um, – I, I guess it's uh, about what? Hundred uh, angstroms or so, yeah, so it's right. like so, wow. really, yeah, still really small, small. Yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, small. Yeah. So I know that recently um, people managed to run a sixty-two million atom simulation. Right. So sixty-two atoms. So that's an HIV capsid, yep. just oh, a capsid, wow. not the entire, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. virus. Yeah, yeah. And they managed to do sixty-two million. Atoms. That's so impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. And that's kind of the level that I would like to be. So at the minute, the way they did, they still applied relatively cheap methods that are not as accurate. So my goal is to be able to do it with 
very accurate methods and do like six to two million atoms and then apply Newtonian mechanics on top so we can really understand the dynamics in the of real this world. in the real yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating stuff. I was just was it, what, while you were talking there, I was doing the numbers in my head and, you know, five, 500,000 being 100 angstroms, which is about 10 nanometers. Yes. And a human yeah. hair is about 50,000 yeah. nanometers. So keep going down. Yes. So, you know, just get your head around that, people like that. It, it's small. It occurred, it occurred to me that, um, that I wonder if the answer to these sorts of computations in quantum chemistry is a quantum computer. Mm. But then you've got chicken and egg, yes. <laughs> big time. <laughs> uh, look, I think the jury is still out there. I think yeah. we do not really know uh, whether quantum computing is really going to help us. Uh, I hope it will, uh, but there is a problem of noise uh, with quantum computing. Especially when you've got yeah. tiny things. Mm. And, yes. and I guess yeah. it's like, you know, the way I like kind of to think about it, it's like flipping a coin, right? Mm. So, you know, if you have a very small system, you, uh, you know, you only need to flip a coin a few times to get to the precise solution. But as you go to 100,000 of atoms yeah. and yeah. then a million, well, a how many... Ex- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then that kind of defeats the purpose of yeah. doing quantum computing yeah. for the systems. I'm not an expert, And therefore, I still rely on experts to tell me that it is possible in the future that we will do that. And I do collaborate with people who are developing codes, uh, quantum chemistry codes for quantum computing. So that's amazing. And I hope it will come to fruition. I'm not sure if I will be alive by that stage, but, you know, let's hope. It's super cool stuff. I have this image of you at sort of the the Monash Careers Day and and you're sitting there at your table and next to you is the chemistry table and people come up and they talk about chemistry and then you go, well, let's talk about quantum. (laughs) That sounds good, but, you know, you could work with me instead. I mean, the chemist guys must go, God damn it, Katja, just don't talk about that stuff. Gets people interested. It's super fascinating. Now, before we let you go, I just wanted to Quickly talk about the uh, the talk coming up this yes. Friday night mm-hmm. at, um, at the, it's in the new beautiful new architecture building at Melbourne University, and the name of that building is Glenn um, Davis. I used to work for the Vice Chancellor yes. Glenn Davis. I should remember his name <laughs> in the Glenn Davis building. Um, and people can book that via um, the the online booking service. If, in fact, I did this earlier. If you just Google July Lectures in mm-hmm. Physics 2022, you'll find it. But your talk is going to be all about. Quantum chemistry. Yes. And will people get to see, will there be yeah, things exploding on stage? No. Oh, well, that's good. Are you very confident thing? about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I guess something might explode in their minds when oh, they start nice. thinking about yeah, it. But yeah. definitely there will be no explosions or uh, any dangerous experiments. Yep. And no chemistry or quantum knowledge is required to attend this lecture? Not at all. Not at all. And I think I had brilliant lecturers uh, before me, which is a bonus. So mm-hmm. Nicole Bell, Professor yep. Nicole Bell, already explained the basics of quantum mechanics. So I will build up on Nicole's talk and I will actually tell the audience what is it that makes quantum chemistry different. Mm. But at the same time, the link to physics, right, why as a quantum chemist, I was invited to give a lecture within the physics lecture series. So I I think, you know, there is a lot of the connection, but there is also a lot of differences there because we do study atoms, not elementary particles. So we only deal with three real elementary particles, but they make our life very hard. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, um, 
Kaltja, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's a, it's a pleasure hearing all about your work, and I think um, for, for many people, they won't have heard a lot about quantum chemistry, but it's a, it's a huge area. It's been around for a while. Um, good luck with your talk on Friday. I hope you have a massive crowd, as, as Nicole did. I know the July lectures in physics have been around for like 50 years, yeah. and they're super popular. They used to be in a little theatre. Mm. Going to. Yes. Now they're in a ginormous theatre um, because so many people go. So have a great time on Friday, um, and folks, if you want to uh, attend, you do have to book, but it's um, just Google July Lectures in Physics 2022 and you should find all the details. And there are pre-drinks and finger food at 5.30. Oh, there you go. See, there's a whole reason to go on. Yep, so there you go. Chris will be there now for yep, sure. Totally. <laughs> Thank you, Katja. Thank great you, Shane. You. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, we're just going to take a short break and we're going to come back in a moment and talk about uh, something that came out this week that I'm pretty excited about. Triple R. Uh, Welcome back, folks. Uh, I've got about five minutes left on the show, and I could not get through this week's program without bringing up the awesomeness that is the James Webb Telescope. I'm impressed you've done that that calmly. That was that was professional. <laughs> there was no schoolboy giggle in it or anything. Well, so it's interesting. Some of the some of the long term listeners of the show, and I don't mean to isolate people who just start listening today here, but um, would remember that about 20, 25 years ago, I interviewed Jocelyn Bell. Mm. Um, and Jocelyn Bell Burnell, Dame Professor Jocelyn yes. Bell Burnell, was the um, the amazing researcher who, as a PhD student, discovered the pulsar. So one of the rotating remnants yes. of the dead star, and um, which you know, amazing astronomical object. And her supervisor won the Nobel Prize for it. No comment. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. And I interviewed Jocelyn again about a year ago because in that original interview we talked about this new telescope, which I think back then was called the Next Generation Space Telescope. It, didn't it wasn't called name. the Webb. Yeah. Um, and the possibility of that. And you know, about a year ago when I spoke to Jocelyn again. You know, the Webb Telescope launch had been delayed year after year after year. There have been all sorts of problems. And she cried on the interview. Broke me up, man. Wow. You know, it was like because she, didn't, she was worried she wouldn't get to see it. You know, wow. She was almost 80 and, and yeah. was worried she would never get to see this amazing thing happening in her life. And when, I, when the images, uh, you know, the first image, of course, being um, the one that Joe Biden sort of released on mm. Monday, mm. our Monday um, came out. Uh, all I could think about was uh, Jocelyn Bell, and she had a birthday this week. Um, nice. So you know, what a birthday, birthday present. present! Yeah, and so she would have seen those um, those images, and I thought, I hope, I hope she had another tear when she saw them because it was mm. you know just quite something to speak to someone over decades who yeah. has dedicated their entire life. And um, yeah, that's awesome. And she recently won the award. Um, from the British Society, the Royal Society, I think, and they gave her like three million pounds or something. She dedicated a whole lot to equity scholarships and so forth. Gave really? every cent of it up, every cent. Yep, amazing human being. Sensational. Yeah, amazing human being. So really supportive of you know young women and, and people from disadvantaged backgrounds and so mm. forth into science, which is which is great. But but the images. One of the things I wanted to mention to you, Chris, is the um, the Worldwide Telescope uh, Group. And um, folks, uh, I strongly suggest if you've got a decent internet connection or you just want to you know destroy your normal internet connection, <laughs> um, if you go to worldwidetelescope.org, um, there is a web client there which allows you to zoom in and out of the the data that um, that Webb has put out so far. Because one of the things that many people would not be aware of is that the images that you download on your local news site, are the, to be frank, I'm going to say it, they're the crappy low-res versions. Yeah. Um, if you tried to download the detailed versions, they're, you know, tens of gigabytes mm, and mm. they're huge. And what this, this software allows you to do is zoom in and out 
and take advantage of that higher resolution data. So you can you can zoom into some of the ones that they've they've put up and see even more detail. That's sensational. And so I think it was Thursday when I discovered this, and I sort of spent um, well, you know, no more than two days. Looking at these, things. I didn't realize that because I actually saw I saw someone on Twitter had posted, uh, you know, like a, a short video zooming in and out of things. So I'm like, oh wow, that's great! You can see so much more. Like, mm. I didn't realize that it was actually a, a you know, publicly accessible yeah, um, yeah. thing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you just go to um, the, if you tweak, uh, sorry, tweak a uh, Twitter, <laughs> put in Twitter. No, go into Google. <laughs> uh, my brain's not working. And and Google AAS Worldwide Telescope. You'll get to their website, and then there are some um, some instructions there on how to how to find it. But it allows you to zoom in. And, and one of the things that's so fascinating is that when you look at that picture of the nebula and so forth, mm. is that with the Webb Telescope, and this is people say, oh, why does it look so much different to Hubble? Is it that much better? And my my immediate comment is. Notice the stars yep. that you can see through the nebula. Yeah. If you look at Hubble, it can't see through all that. Yeah. But the Webb telescope, because it looks in the infrared, can see through the dust and see all the stuff in the background, which is just mind-blowing. And, and, the, and the light of the stars bending around things, which, oh. is, which is unbelievable to see. Like, yeah, to, yeah, to, to know what's going lens. on is yeah. just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. and you get all that, that weird smearing effect, which some people, I think, yeah. originally said, is that the, the telescope? And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's the actual data, and it looks amazing. And the other thing about the data, I'd say often the stars have these little spikes around them, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and that's coming from the edges of the mirrors. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was explaining to this to, to uh, someone the other day, and I said, you'll get the same thing if you look at the star through your windscreen at night. Um, you'll often get a cross. And that's because you're looking through little cubes of glass that make up your windscreen, and you can get that same pattern. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you get four of them rather yes. than I think I think there's six, um, I think. six or eight. Um, yeah, in the yeah. in the new Webb telescope. So um, it's super cool stuff. But anyway, yeah. um, get onto that website, folks. Yeah. Have a look. Um, but you know, set aside a day. And, and and you know, this is going back way way back to the start of the universe too. So the, or yeah. early yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, just um, thirteen billion years. Is that all? So it's only thirteen point seven total. So it's almost back to the start. Amazing stuff. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about more, more of that in a moment. We're going to hand over to Edith. So have a great Sunday. Uh, thanks, Chris KP. It's been, uh, it's been a great show to come back to. And we will talk to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a fantastic Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.